0: Well, if you've, been, um, if you've been joining us over the summer through August, we spent a number of Sundays looking um, through Matthew's gospel at a number of the encounters that Jesus had and each time asking this question, what is Jesus like in that story? And uh, what do we notice about his character and his nature? And so we we looked at the story of um, how Jesus healed the bleeding woman and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he healed a leper, and the encounter that he had with the rich young man. I don't know if you remember that one. And when he went into the temple and cleansed the temple, and through that, we saw Jesus' personality his kindness, his grace, his compassion, his mercy, his power, his authority. his his radical welcome to everyone. And today we're going to continue and actually conclude this little journey through Matthew by looking at the events around Jesus' crucifixion. And we've already started to do that this morning as Ben led us so beautifully through the Lord's Supper. But we're going to be looking at Jesus' crucifixion and we're going to be asking once again this question, what is Jesus like? What is Jesus like? Now Jesus' death on a cross is a historical fact. The historians of the time, as well as the gospel accounts, attest to the fact that it happened. There is also little doubt that the events surrounding Jesus' death have changed the course of human history more than any other event. Um, You know, without the cross, there is no Christianity. And without Christianity, if you think about it, our whole society you know, the moral foundation of the laws of this country and many other countries, particularly in the West, would be different. Our, our culture, our architecture, the fabric of our cities, without Christianity, even the way that we measure the date. But to those of us who follow Jesus, the cross is more than just a significant historic event. In, in, in his letter to the, to the Corinthian church, Paul, the early church planter, said, he said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. As Christians, Jesus' death is central to our faith in so many ways. And there are so many things that you could say about the cross. But the thing that we're gonna focus on specifically today is as we look at him There on the cross is this question, what is he he like? What does it tell us about his character and his nature? Now, it's not a pleasant thing to do, to to, to look at this. But to answer that question, we have to spend a moment explaining, um, or for those of us who've heard this stuff before, reminding ourselves of the the brutality of the cross. Crucifixion was used as um, as a method of execution, and also torture for several centuries in the the ancient Middle East. Um, It it, it meant a slow, agonising death where, um, where, through a combination of shock, um, organ failure, um, constrained blood circulation, and eventually asphyxiation caused the person to die as its body strained under its own weight. It was a a form of execution that was reserved for the worst criminals. And uh, it served two punishments, really, Sorry, two purposes, punishment, but also it was a form of warning. The victims' bodies were often left on the cross for days as a visual deterrent to would-be criminals or rebels. It was later banned by um, subsequent Roman emperors and condemned. And uh, the the Roman Jewish historian Flavius describes crucifixion as the most pitiable of deaths. And yet this is the death that Jesus faced. The way it came about in the story was that the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders at the time, they became threatened by Jesus' growing, growing popularity um, and what they saw as blasphemous claims that he was the Messiah. And it, it, meanwhile, the Roman authorities they were also co- concerned about any kind of emerging Jewish rebel that presented a threat to peace and control. And so there was a bunch of sort of political complexities that you could get into going on, but basically what it boiled down to was small-minded men were threatened by Jesus' evident authority. And so a plan was, a plot was was made to take him out, and it all came to a head one night when Jesus was arrested. He was dragged in the middle of the night before the high priests for this sort of trial. He faced their charges. He was sent on to Herod, uh, the Jewish king, And then Pilate, the Roman governor. And that's where we're going to pick this story up in in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27. Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. If you know the story, um, from there, this, this sort of farcical, unjust trial process kind of took place culminating in Jesus um, being um, he was they got the crowd to choose whether they wanted to execute Barabbas this notorious criminal or Jesus Um, and then Jesus was scourged he was effectively beaten and whipped as far as you could do that without killing a person and then alongside all the physical suffering there was an emotional abuse subjected to him Jesus was mocked Um, it says then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. And then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. The humiliation. Jesus was then taken to be crucified and the humiliation continued. The soldiers watching him gambled for his clothes while he died and they put a taunting sign above his head saying, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. I'm going to continue on in verse 34. 30, no, a little bit further down. Those who passed hurled incense at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, these are the people who are supposed to be responsible, they mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. Humiliation. Even the criminals dying next to Jesus felt that Jesus was beneath them, and they started mocking him too. He was, abandoned. His disciples had scattered by this point, and the same crowds that had sort of hailed him as the Messiah just a week before shook their heads and mocked him. It says, "From noon. Until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema Sabakhtani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died. Beyond the physical and the emotional suffering, there was a spiritual suffering going on too that's deep and mysterious. As Jesus bears the weight of the sin of the world And he cries out to his father at the point of death. So what is Jesus like in this story? What strikes you about him? I was chatting to a friend and they said this week, well, it might help to ask what he's not like in this story. Because do you notice that he doesn't behave the way you might expect an innocent man to behave under trial? He doesn't protest his innocence, does he? He doesn't plead for his life. He doesn't um, call upon witnesses to come and defend him. He doesn't try and flee at his arrest and hide amongst his allies. He doesn't try and win back the crowd and try and redirect their offence to Barabbas in that moment. No, he does none of those things. The word that's really struck me as I've looked upon this the last couple of weeks is dignity. 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 Do you see how how dignified he is? The Roman governor Pilate, an extremely powerful man, was amazed by Jesus' composure as he answered all these questions. He was amazed not so much by what he said but what he didn't say and what he chose not to say. There is a dignity behind the way Jesus faced the whole experience at his arrest and um, we didn't read that, but when he, when he was arrested, it was Jesus was the one that was calming everybody down, even though he was the one that had the most to be stressed about. And um, before the chief priests, when he was um, trialed by them, you should read it. He was in total control of that dialogue, and their questions and their sneers just sound pathetic. So here's a question. What does this dignity tell us about the person of Jesus? To me, it shows that this wasn't the death of a criminal. This was the death of a king. Jesus faced death like a nobleman, like a king. His dignity points to his royalty. He is the suffering king. He's the suffering king. And just as suffering is part of Jesus' story, Jesus explains that it will also be part of our lives as his followers. It's a dynamic um, that we partner in. And later, um, Paul described this this in in, in his letter to the Romans. He said, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. When Christians kind of carry and they embody the dignity of Christ in the midst of suffering, it points beyond ourselves to the glory of Jesus our King. And, you know, there are many, many stories throughout church history of Christians doing this, of finding in Jesus the strength to somehow embody dignity in the midst of suffering, even to the point of depth, in a way that befits our royal status as sons and daughters of the King. And, for example, I think of um, Corrie ten Boom. Who's not read Corrie ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place?, if you haven't, you should, it's the next book you should read. It's amazing. Corrie ten Boom was a woman who, who suffered. She was slung in a Nazi concentration camp because her family hid Jewish people during the war um, in Amsterdam. And her, her dad and her best friend, her sister, were killed, in the, died in the concentration camp. But she explained that after the war, she eventually met The most brutal or one of the most brutal guards in the concentration camp. And he asked for her forgiveness. And she found that she was able to forgive him. And she said, I couldn't do it, but Christ in me could. What dignity, what composure. Or a few years ago in 2015, you might remember the story of ISIS kidnapping and executing 21 migrant workers because of their their faith. Um, it, was, it was humiliating. They, they videoed it. They, they paraded them out on the beach. And, and um, the, the first 20 to be executed were Egyptian Coptic Christians. They were each offered the choice of, of um, denouncing Jesus or execution, and they each chose to die. And uh, I haven't seen the video, but apparently their lips can be seen praying and declaring before their death the words, Yarabi Yasu, O my Lord Jesus. And then the 21st victim was, a, was, was not Egyptian. He was a Ghanaian called Matthew Ayariga. And he too had the chance to, to denounce Jesus and be, or, uh, uh, and be set free or to die. And actually it's interesting, that they don't, it's a little bit unclear whether he was even a Christian before this happened. Some say he was, some say he wasn't either way incredibly he found the courage to look at the execute bodies around him and say their God is my God and he faced the same fate with such poise and such dignity now of course not all Christians are martyred but all Christians do endure suffering on different levels and just just last week on our um we had a, a retreat as a leadership the leadership team here um, we spent a few hours just sharing our experiences over the last year and praying for one another. And some of the stuff that, that, that people have been through, bereavements and traumas and um, sickness and mental health challenges. And yet hearing it, as I reflected on the year working alongside these friends, it struck me of the poise and the dignity with which they had carried their burdens. Because you see, we each have a choice about how we face suffering. We can choose to become indignant, we can complain how it's not our fault, we can declare our innocence, we can try and look for somebody else to blame, or we can face suffering like Jesus did, knowing that we worship a God who is familiar with pain and who will give us the strength to endure, knowing that we are sons and daughters of the suffering King, And yet there's something perplexing about that phrase though, isn't there? Those two words, suffering and king, have you noticed they don't really belong together, do they? You know, why should a king, especially an all-powerful one and especially an innocent one, have to suffer? Surely he should have the authority to avoid such pain. And of course this was the cruel joke behind the Romans when they, when they, um, when they you know, mocked him and they dressed him as a king with a crown of thorns. And it was, the, it was the cruel joke behind the crowd saying, oh, he can't even save himself. The Bible scholar Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. And it is strange, isn't it? It doesn't make sense unless, unless that suffering was a choice, which of course it was. It was his choice. The Gospels have multiple accounts of Jesus predicting his death and his resurrection. Ben talked about this earlier. It wasn't, um, you know, he, he, on the way to Jerusalem, he explained explicitly at the Lord's Supper, he explained this was what was going to happen. And it wasn't just his, um, his intuition that told him that, it was the eternal plan of the Father, the Son and the Spirit that had, they had made. And as Ben took us through Psalm, part of Psalm 22 this morning, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? The way that that, that that passage written a thousand years before describes and explains Jesus' fate and in fact, Matthew, in this, it's interesting. Matthew, in, the, in his gospel, he highlights uh, at least four times specific things that are in Psalm 22 to emphasize this fact that it was planned, that Jesus knew it was going to happen. The words from Jesus' lips, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? They're a direct quote from Psalm 22. It also Psalm 22 also describes them casting lots for his clothing. It talks about the crowd walking past and wagging their heads. It describes the hands and the feet. His death was terrible, but it was a choice. What is Jesus like in this passage? He's intentional. He's unswervingly, unflinchingly intentional because he had a reason to die. In fact, he had millions of reasons to die. In fact, quite a few hundred of those reasons we're sat here in this room today. And the thing that's really got me um, over the summer as we've looked at all these different encounters that Jesus had with people in Matthew's gospel, the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter and the leper and the rich young man, all these encounters, in fact, all of the encounters that Jesus had with people in the gospels, it just struck me how he said all of these things to all these people knowing that these were the types of people, these were the very people that he had come to die for. You know, so for example, do you remember that conversation that he had with the rich young ruler? He was having a chat with this rich young ruler who was worried about whether following Jesus was going to cost him his money, you know? And it says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. It's really struck me that he did that he loved him knowing that he himself was going to have to give up not just his money but his whole life for people just like this even the people who mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross he saved others they said but he can't save himself they thought he was incapable of saving himself they completely missed the point he wasn't he had no intention of saving himself he was saving them he was saving us he was saving the world And even over those people, he said, he looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what is Jesus like? He's the suffering king. But his intentionality, the fact that it was a choice, shows us and tells us that he is the loving king. Romans 5, chapter eight, this is Paul again. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a mystery that we'll never really understand. But the only way to make us clean, to remove the barrier of sin, to break the power of sin that prevents humanity from living in our identity as sons and daughters of the King, was for Jesus to sacrifice himself and break the power of sin. That's why he did it, because he loved them because he loves us, he loves you enough to give his life. And for those of us who know Jesus, this is the thing that we receive of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And it remains today of first importance to us as followers of Jesus. And we have this saying in the vineyard, the way in is the way on. And uh, that applies, I think, to the way that we see the cross. It's not just the start line of the race. The cross is not just the thing that we come to at the beginning to get our ticket stamped so that we can go to heaven. The cross is the ever present landmark up on that hill that helps us navigate the path of this life. Each day it serves as a reminder to us that he is with us when we encounter suffering and he'll give us the strength that he has, that he understands and that he knows pain. It's it's also a reminder up on that hill That when we fail and we do each day, that his forgiveness covers that, that his forgiveness is for us. It stands as a reminder also up on that hill of the people that we are called to be a people who are sacrificial and loving and put other people first the way Jesus did. It's a reminder of the costly journey that we have embarked on to take up our own cross each day and follow Jesus with a dignity befitting the royal status that he has won for us by his blood. So the cross is the start line, but it's also the wayfinder. It's also something that helps us navigate each day of our lives. But remember, at the same time, it's not the only landmark on our journey. Because there was also the empty tomb and the risen Saviour. The cross is not the end of the story. It's not the finish line in a way. And Jesus is risen and he's calling us onwards. So we run this race in the shadow of the cross and in the light of the resurrection. And for those of you who, who, who haven't started that journey, for those of you who don't know Jesus, you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, I want to invite you to join us in that journey today. And we're going to do that in a moment, but first let's finish um, (laughs) the story. This is how it ends. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. And listen to this. When the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? And exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. I love that. If you're yet to make up your mind about Jesus, listen to the words of that centurion. Surely he was the son of God. The centurion, you you didn't get to be, the centurion was not like a happy, clappy type soft person. You don't get to be a centurion without being a world-weary, battle-hardened soldier. This was a man who'd seen death. He'd seen violence and executions. He was a man who knew men New criminals, rebels, and warriors. But in that moment, he recognized this was the death of no criminal. This was the death of a king. This wasn't just the death of any old man, but the son of God. And he declared it. And since that day, millions of people have heard this same story, and their heart has told them, indeed, that this was the king that their hearts longed for, the suffering King, the loving King, the saving King, the only King capable and willing of saving us, making us whole, the only King worth following, the only King who's truly good. And there is an invitation to make Jesus the King of your life and of your future today. And so I'll just, uh, we're going to do that. I'd just invite, if everybody would like to, if you're able to, why don't we stand and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit and we're going to, there's going to be an opportunity for all of us to pray. Um, But first, for some of you, and you might be watching online, this might be you as well. Some of you here and you're tired of living life your own way, you're tired of all the mistakes and where that leads you and you you, you realise your heart is telling you that you need to do a U-turn. You need to stop living life your way and turn to Jesus as your Lord and Saviour to make him the king of your present life and your eternal future and to have him come and make a home in your heart. But to do that, um, our hearts need to be clean and we need to accept his forgiveness and be washed clean by him. We need to carry all the junk and our mistakes and our failures and put it at the foot of the cross. Receive his forgiveness so that we can start a new life with him.